0: That was the week that I was like, okay, if this is real, my company's going to run out of money within, by the end of the year, I need to go raise now.
1: Welcome B2B startups, change-ups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Our guest today is five-time startup entrepreneur, Jason Smith. He is the CEO and co-founder at Clue, a competitive intelligence platform used by Cisco, Dell, and Hootsuite. They raised $19 million in venture funding, and he's an Ernest & Young Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year Award winner. And we're going to talk about data-driven decision-making. Jason, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. Happy to be here, Eric. That's awesome to have you. But first, Talkwalker just released its 2021 Social Media Trends Report, which deep dives into social media marketing strategies that will be most effective in 2021 based on interviews with influencers and research from their social media monitoring intelligence platform. It's an amazing report that you don't want to miss, and you can get it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash Talkwalker. So, Jason... Legend has it, you lost the tip of your baby finger in Thailand.
0: (laughs) You're going to start there, Eric. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Let's see it first. I did. Okay. So, all right. Anybody who's live can actually look at that. There is a bit of a difference. Okay. That's um, all right. This came from a sliver that I got when I jumped out of one of those... I don't know what even they're called, like a, the equivalent of a rickshaw boat that drops you off at an island in the middle of nowhere.
1: they oh no, is it rickshaw, rickshaw boats? It's a boat. It's they a call boat. Them long-tails. Wait, longtails.
0: Longtails. Okay, that's exactly right. Yeah, it was yes. a longtail boat that I hopped out of, and you know, this is post-university kind of travel, and I was solo in Thailand, and I got a sliver, a little tiny sliver in your pinky, and so. This is at a time where you would consider sharing a bed with a stranger to split a $10 hut, right? Like this is, you know, going back when you had no money. And so, anyway, I was playing volleyball on the beach, hanging out, and this little sliver started to really hurt. And uh, I got my needle out, my sewing and thread kit, and I tried to get it out like you would here in North America. And uh, it obviously got infected. And so, over the series of a couple of days, I started to complain about this little finger. And of course, these stranger travelers that I'd been meeting backpacking are like, really? Your pinky hurts? Uh huh. (laughs) I'm really sorry for you. So, yeah, I'm like, okay, I can't complain about my pinky. And it turns out when I hopped into that long tail and went back to the mainland and said, listen, my pinky really hurts. And they they open it up. They said this is this is gangrene. Like you, you, if you had waited another week, you might have lost your hand. And so I hopped on a twenty four hour bus to Singapore and got it properly operated on. And so this is what I'm left with: uh, the wow. loss of the fingertip.
1: Well, thank God you got to keep your hand. We're happy about that. And uh you know it's it's uh, you know we're living this time obviously of uh unprecedented uh, restricted access physically there's no trade shows there's no conferences and so I wanted to start off because you know I know you deal with data how has the pandemic made it easier for companies to focus on data
0: Yeah I think um I think there's been a there's been a big swing, right? Like you can't um, you can't tap the shoulder of somebody and ask them questions, and so there's this push to get information from systems. So um, Clue, uh, my company, has certainly benefited from that. Many companies have benefited from people saying, "I just need to pull this report, I need to find this piece of information," and they're having to do it themselves um, rather than shoulder tap and get it from somebody in an office. So I think COVID has actually accelerated the. adoption adoption of more and more data-driven tools more collaboration tools frankly any tools that are helping you navigate the complexity of a business without needing to ask somebody personally in face-to-face format so yeah i'm seeing i'm seeing like our our tool adoption increase i'm seeing data being pulled by people that would have asked others for it and they're just doing it themselves
1: now jason um you were raising money during the pandemic, right? No, that was a fun experience. Yeah, That was at the very beginning. I mean, you know, uh, you, you're you're a handsome guy. You got blue eyes. You're probably tall. <laughs> How did did you feel handicapped pitching over Zoom?
0: It was a it was um, a very very unique experience, Eric. It was one of um, uh, so let me let me paint the story for you. This is a company that had been growing well but had experienced Q3 a flat quarter relative to my Q2 2019. And Q4, I had to knock out of the park. And so we hit Q4 out of the park. And that was great. So I'm like, let's raise in Q1. And then there was so much business that spilled over from Q4 into Q1 2020. I thought, let's just wait until April and we'll go in Q2. And then, of course, COVID hits. And if you can remember back in the day when your neighbor went to Costco and loaded up and you thought they were crazy, and then everybody realized it was real that week of March, what, as 16th? That was the week that I was like, okay, if this is real, my company's going to run out of money within by the end of the year. I need to go raise now on the back of my story. And I was advised by every single person in my um, advisory community that that was not a good idea. But my belief was that maybe we could benefit from the Zoom experience, benefit from actually doing it remotely. Um, I'm based in Vancouver, you know, the Bay Area is where the VCs live generally. And so I'd normally be on a plane driving up and down a highway. In the Zoom era, I was able to uh, meet with VCs on a um, rapid fire basis. So instead of two or three meetings a day, I could have eight and I could very quickly go through my list of folks that I wanted to speak with about fundraising. And the beautiful thing is the flip side for them is they had time. Suddenly their conferences were canceled. They weren't on planes anymore. They could open up and they had time. And so I could go from one partner to multiple partners and get to a yes or a no very quickly. And so literally for us, what, I, what started, by the way, as a very horrendous first week, which was, sorry, this is a disaster triage, portfolio help, we're not going to be investing anything new, turned into three term sheets in four weeks. And I credit being able to do that over Zoom with how speedy it was. Um, One other thing that you mentioned, Eric, that I think was really interesting, the human element. How do you get to know somebody on Zoom, right? And I had a lot of the VCs originally that said, um, we probably won't invest until we can meet you face to face and see if this thing blows over. But there was this odd human element that existed where um, we were all experiencing the same thing. So literally, it was, how are you in that first week? And there was a human connection that was far different than waiting in a boardroom, fiddling with your dongle to make sure that your display was up on the screen for the partner to come in. So it was very humanized from that. um, We're all going through the same thing. And then even more so when I was looking in the background and your kids are dancing around with a sock puppet right like that you just don't get that in a boardroom so you couldn't help be a human element the back channel references all mattered but there was certainly a humanizing piece to zoom that was unexpected
1: if someone from outside the digital bubble someone from outside silicon valley someone from outside the software as a service community uh had a chance to sit down with you, and they're new to web marketing. They're new to digital analytics entirely, and they ask you, "What numbers should I be looking at to get a better sense of my performance?" What would you tell them?
0: Yeah, that's uh, so. I am I am so skewed to the software as a service business. It's what I've known for almost seventeen years now, since the very early days there's very clear metrics that are associated with that world of selling software as a service on a monthly subscription basis. The primary ones are your recurring revenue. What does your monthly recurring revenue, your MRR, look like as a growth on a month-over-month basis? Is it growing? And is it not? If it is, then you've got your first kind of step. And there's a certain level, if you have never started a company before, your reputation doesn't matter. You've got to prove that customers care about what you have. And that's going to be reflected in your monthly recurring revenue. But the other metrics are going to be just as important around are you losing customers? Are you growing those customers? And so they'll look at new customers that you're adding from new MRR monthly recurring revenue. They'll look at expansion of those customers. Are those customers liking what they bought initially and wanting more? They'll look at contraction. Are they saying, you know what, I overbought and I want less now. And so there might be a reduction in your recurring revenue. And they'll look at churn. You know, if a customer comes in and played with it for a month and said, whoop, not my thing, and I'm out. They'll absolutely look at the churn side and say, well, people, you're able to attract it from a marketing standpoint. You've, you've generated the leads and you've successfully had people sign up, but you've got a leaky bucket and people are leaving on the other side. So the churn factor will be another one. Those are the key metrics on the licensing side. There's a whole bunch of other geeky metrics that folks will look at. Is your contract value increasing? Is it growing? What is your customer acquisition cost? Is it, is it really expensive for every dollar that you sell? Are you paying $2 to get them? That's an issue, right? You can do that if you've raised money in the beginning, but they obviously want to see you make money on every customer that you're pulling in.
1: So um, if, you, yeah. if you had to choose, if I said to you, you got to choose, hmm. you can either have your internal data or your external data, but one of them's got to go, which one would you take?
0: And by internal data, what are you referring to versus external?
1: So, when I say internal data, I mean your website usage statistics, um, your CRM customer engagement statistics, um, any sort of email. Uh, interaction activity, um, maybe, I don't know, uh, a sort of work graph if you were using Slack and you were looking at the graph to see how people are using uh, technology to communicate. And then I'll give you one more. You're using Highspot and you're looking at uh, you know sales enablement, Technology, what decks are closing business the most and getting altered the most and resulting in deals? All that versus looking at your competitors and what they're doing and the broader market. You get one or the other to guide your ship. Which one's most important?
0: I'm going to answer that depending on stage, all right? So I think in the earliest stage of your business, when you're trying to find product market fit, you absolutely need to be oscillating on um, how is the market, your target customer, receiving your offer. And so I'll go external in the early days, but very quickly it pivots to the internal information, because it's the internal stuff that you're going to get the indicators of usage. So the product that you've come up with, Are people really caring enough that they're activating on usage? Like, are they firing on all cylinders going, I need more of this? It's explosive in terms of what they're trying to adopt with it. And you're only going to see that in your internal metrics. You're also going to be able to get the feedback through surveys and information back into your CRM about how they're using it, the qualitative pieces, that's gonna be internal. So I would say in the beginning, I'm gonna go with external because you need the market iterations, what your competitors are doing, where you fit relative, and then internal as it grows.
1: Now, I know you said you focus on SaaS, but you've been doing it for 17 years, so you know a thing or two about digital business. So if you sat down with an uncle at a holiday party and he would start, he had started up an e-commerce business. He got a Shopify store and a WordPress site and he linked them together and he had some products he was selling and you're all, you're the only one he knows. So, you know, he's not his ass, but he knows you, you're his nephew. And he sits you down and he he says, uh, you know, what should I be looking at to compete against a company like Amazon because obviously he may have a little nothing company, but everybody's competing against Amazon. So what would you, what advice would you give him to fight that fight?
0: Interesting. Um, You know, my uncle first would say, so how do I turn on the computer? Uh, But yeah, that's that crazy uncle. Once he's in there, I think, you know, when, when, when you're looking at your competition um, you're looking for the gaps and what they do relative to what you do. It's always about your unique selling proposition. So a product that is incrementally better um, isn't going to fetch more money. So if you're selling on a Shopify site, let's say it's a pair of socks and you have an interesting pair of socks because you've got a shade of blue that's slightly better than somebody else's shade of blue. Well, They're probably going to take in a whole bunch of other factors. I trust Amazon more than this two-bit operation. I want the return policy to be smooth. I'm not sure about this. And they're probably going to sacrifice that fringe color of blue that you have unless it's so unique that they're willing to do it. And so I think level of uniqueness and differentiation in your product offering will directly correspond to the other factors that you won't have when you're starting. Your reputation, the number of reviews, the return policies that are smooth, um, the swapping ability of uh, an exchange, um, all of those pieces that you might not have. So you need your product to be 10x better. You need something that it's not just going to be the, the fringe color of blue. It's going to be toe-reinforced. It's going to have padding on the heel. It's going to come from Guatemalan cats, and their hair is better and softer Bella than anybody Hadid
1: else. likes them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you have any sort of great examples that make the benefits of data-driven decision-making crystal clear to non-technical people?
0: Yeah, I think when, when you think about data-driven decisions, um, um, Look, I think there's a lot of people that end up going on gut and aren't actually uh, absorbing what the data is telling them. And so, um, my view is the biggest benefit of data driven decisions is um, uh, um, conflict and iteration of your own gut instinct. I know people are going to love these socks. Really? You've had them on the site, you've advertised and spent 20 grand against that, and no one's bought the socks. Is it the socks? Right, like you, you sometimes need the data to tell you that you're kidding yourself and you just really wanted to build a business and you're just trying every angle, but the data is telling you it's not there. So the biggest benefit to me is um, an early stage entrepreneur. It's the fallacy of you want to start a business, but the data is telling you it's not right you haven't found the product market fit you haven't you haven't figured it out yet the data is going to tell you that so to me that's the number one benefit everything else is going to be the nuance within that how do you get to that fit how do you get to iterating with that they're telling you that they really like The blue, I'm going down the sock analogy a little long, you know, they really like the blue, but it's actually the, you know, the softness. It's too, it's too rough on the heels. So now that's something you could, you could iterate on and maybe come up with something better. You know, it's tough to find a good pair of
1: socks (laughs) because the truth is, you know, they don't make your size anymore. They make like nine to 12 and, you know, three to three to nine, you know, it's like, come on, man.
0: It's the worst with the ankle socks, too.
1: So every company has a website, which means every company's in the media business because a website is digital media. And the experience people have on your website directly impacts your reputation. I'd say it shapes the perception of that company or brand. When I go to a company that has a bad website, my impression is they're dinosaurs. They're gonna be difficult to work with because they're still in the dark ages. But it's tough to keep a website current, particularly if you're reliant on IT to update your site. So if you're in PR or marketing and you're a non-technical person and you need an easy way to keep your website current, check out IPR software. They've got a super easy digital reputation management platform that you can use without writing a stitch of code. And this is really cool. It's a special offer for B2B lead gen podcast listeners. If you go to com IPR software and tell them you heard about uh, them on the B2B lead gen podcast, they'll give you the first month free. So go to com forward slash IPR software. Check it out and see how much easier your life can be. There's no data like more data. So, Jason, how much data do you need to have confidence in analytical takeaways from data?
0: If you had the PhD researchers on the line, they would tell you there's a certain size of sample. There's a certain number of people in a survey um, to create some statistical significance. And that number is you know, probably not lower than 100 people that you're talking with, arguably 200. Um I think that question is a loaded question because there is um, um, the more data. It's about finding the patterns in the data more so than it is actually more or less data. It's understanding what the data is telling you.
1: Well, let me because, stop you for a minute. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm looking for a sushi bar. And I see one with, you know, five stars and seven reviews, and then another with four stars and a thousand reviews, I'm going with the thousand reviews and the four stars. Are right? you? If those there's thousand there's reviews came from dogs, that I have confidence that there's enough data in there <laughs> to ferret out the outliers. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of small companies, you know, they hear advice and they hear, "Oh, look at the data and AB test." Well, you can't AB test with 500 website visitors a month. So, I mean, what's at what point, you know, do do you sort of stop being suspicious in the patterns in the data? How much data do you need to get there?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And if if you look at it from the brand perspective on the reviews, it is going to be relative to what your customers, your other competitors are doing, right? So you're making that choice on the sushi restaurant based on a comparative view of what your competitors are doing. So I think there's input data-wise on what, you know, if your competitor had 20 reviews and you had 23, that's okay, right? You both have limited. If one has a 1,000 and you have 20, it looks very different. So, externally, there's probably a different answer. Internally, I do kind of look at, you could do A-B tests with 500 visitors. It's not going to give you a lot of reliable data. So, where is the perfect number? That's going to depend on, well, how many A-B tests do you want to do? It could be just 1,000 if you're going to do two, because 500 actually
1: are pretty good. Is that the baseline, 1,000? I mean, where does does statistical relevance start?
0: It actually starts roughly around 150. That's the number. Um, And that's um, a survey respondent standpoint. That's what it is. When I spent many years in research previously, we couldn't send a survey to under 150 people and feel like we could project on a population. Two fifty is when your 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 data um, delta gets even better. So it's two fifty based
1: you want. on the sort of failure of the polling around the U.S. elections, the last two presidential elections. I mean, are polls dead? Are we? Why? And here's what I don't understand: Why aren't they just polling uh, random Facebook and Twitter users and looking at what they're talking about and using that as a poll to see where, how people will vote?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Oh my gosh, the polling the polling um misfires on both the past elections, 2020 and 2016 is is um it boils down to how they decided to wait underrepresented populations. So when you talk about data, they just didn't have enough people that were, um, you know, uh, that they could talk to in certain populations. Um, They also um, had people that flat out wouldn't tell them necessarily the truth. When you talk about polling through LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and social means, You're getting a lot of um, you've got this mix of bots and you've got this mix of reality with basically just qualitative views. A survey is the only thing where I directly ask you something. I got to rely on that answer and to figure out the population of how they're all going to vote. There's so many thin slices. Are you white? Are you black? Are you religious? Are you conservative? Are you not? they have to represent all these. Are you young? Are you old? They have to figure out how to represent these. So when you start to look at reliable data, you need a certain number of people in each of those areas to create what your projection is going to look like. And if you weight it wrong, you've underrepresented on the youth vote, you're going to get it wrong.
1: So in the old days, right, pre-internet, We used polls to try to figure out what people would do. And we'd ask them, hey, what would you do in this situation? But now you have actual data on what people do. So should rather than asking people what they would do, why don't we just look at what they really do? Ah,
0: I think it's a combined issue. So understanding the why of what they did is very difficult to read through in your website statistics, and the raw data that you get from a lot of tools. I know that you came in, you came to my homepage, you clicked and watched my video, you went to the about us section, you actually looked at jobs, but you ended up actually taking some of our content and coming in as a lead. Are you a job seeker? Why'd you do the job thing? Well, you were curious about how we write about our job postings and wanted to understand the culture of the company that you might do business with. How am I going to learn that by just looking at the data? I have to ask you. That's where polls come in, the
1: why. So, um, talk to me about this concept of unstructured data. Because, like, it's one thing for an insurance company to use artificial intelligence to comb through insurance claims because that information is formatted. We know the type of claim it is, the amount of the claim, and everything is in different categories. It's been put it parsed into a scheme of different categories. What is unstructured data and how do you make sense of it?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. First, let me say that 80% of the data that's generated inside companies now is unstructured. What unstructured means is it's not put into defined boxes. It is typically sentences, conversations, Slack conversations, audio conversations. Imagine converting this podcast into text. There's some structure because you've asked a question, I've given an answer, but largely it's not really that well structured. There's a bunch of information that if you wanted to distill down the real value, you're going to have to do some real work. So that's where machines actually are starting to come in natural language processing. They're looking at all of these sentences and saying, what's the true meaning of it? What's the high level synopsis of this? That's where AI is actually spending a lot of effort, moving from what they did in images, trying to understand, is this a cat or a dog, to what did you mean by that sentence? You know, can I understand the tone of what you've said? Can I understand when you mentioned it later in the conversation? So unstructured data means it's messy, it's ugly, it's it's hard to understand the patterns. Um, and machines are helping to take that and crunch it down into something that's meaningful. You know, my own company, we have, we look at 3 million different pieces of data every day. There's no way that a human is going to be able to crunch that down into something of relevance. We need a machine to help. So we get that down to a manageable set. We might get down to like a 100 articles about something that's interesting. And then the human has to go through and do their work and read those articles and figure out what's relevant in that. So even that, going from 3 million to 100, is still too much for a human. We need to get down to the three articles and the points within the articles that matter. That's what it means by taking unstructured data and getting it down into
1: a structured insight. If you sat down with an entrepreneur or a small business owner and they showed you their web analytics, what numbers would you be most interested in seeing?
0: Yeah, so for me personally, you know, I'm going to start by looking at um, the broad visits, um, unique visits to the company, to the the site. But then I'm going to quickly look at what the stream of traffic looks like across different pages of the site. Is it the about us? Is it the product page? What product page? What areas of the product page? So when I think of the analytics that I'd want to pull out from the website, it's where are they going? What paths are they following? And am I helping guide that, or is it something random? It's going to help me understand the segments of customers I'm dealing with. Maybe I have a whole bunch of people that I'm attracting that are job seekers. That's not going to help my revenue, but it helps fill a bucket of needs that I have in terms of hiring. Maybe I'm sending a whole bunch of people to the product side. Are they competitors? I want to tease out where they come from. So for me, I want to look at the unique visits, where they come from, and what they're looking at, and try and make some assumptions of what I need to tweak.
1: For beginners who are just learning about the benefits of analytics. Any stories or analogies you can share that you kind of use to communicate to customers when you're talking about Clue?
0: Yeah, when I'm talking about Clue, I think of it, and I'll go back to kind of more of the unstructured side. Um, Clue's about competitive, right? I want to understand my competitors. So I also want to convert whatever I understand into something I can give back to my team so that when they're asked how you compare, how do you compare? to your competitor. You've got something that you could say. So we might find something in a G2 review about the software where somebody said, one star review, super difficult to use. We might take that. We might take a press release that our competitor has done on their new AI feature. And they brag about it this way, look for a corresponding G2 review look for a a post in a Slack conversation that maybe one of your employees was speaking to a prospect that used that AI feature about your competitor. And that customer or prospect told you that it wasn't very good. I'll take that conversation. So I want to take the G2 review, the article from the company itself, maybe another uh, journalist that did an article on that competitor and the Slack conversation. I want to put that all in front of a product marketer that can make an insight out of it.
1: So tell us a little bit about Clue. What is it and how does it work?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll put it into three buckets. So Clue, at the end of the day, is a competitive intelligence solution. What we try and do is understand what your competitors are up to. The complexity comes from, we need to scrape the web to understand what they're doing what press, what articles, what's happening on their website, what job postings do they have, what are they doing on Twitter, who are they hiring, some profiles of the people that they've got in their company, what positioning do they have. If we can find any pricing, Clue gathers all of that information into one area. We'll also try and find if, with the clients we work with, emails that they share, that they learn internally. Slack conversations that they have about a competitor, notes that they put into Salesforce or a CRM solution. We'll combine everything we find from that external web and the internal into one continuously updated dashboard of activity of what they're doing. Collect the information, curate it down into a manageable set, and show it on a continuously updated dashboard about what they're up to.
1: So you're essentially giving, the, uh, giving us outside insight into what's happening in the world so we can benchmark our internal numbers against that?
0: That's right. Yeah. It's more of, it's a lens into what they are doing. So if a company like SimilarWeb is doing something specific around, here's how many unique visits they get compared to what you get, they might be an input source for Clue. Ultimately, what I'm looking at is when you get asked as a salesperson, how do you compare? I need to be able to give you an answer. And that tends to be more sentences and bullet points than it does quantitative structured data. It tends to be
1: unstructured data that we deliver back. Jason Smith, CEO of Clue, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Eric. And I want to thank our sponsors, Talkwalker and IPR Software, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.